Amen. I just still love that video, don't you? Generation Now, those are all faces from our church, and uh, God is on the move in every generation and in every season. Today, we're going to look at the blank-centered home, and this applies to all of us because the likelihood is you have a home, and it's centered on something. As we do this, if you're online with us, drop the emoji of a home, let our chat hosts know you're there, and uh, if you have a picture of your home, you could do that too. Right now, I want to show you a little bit about what is present in my home. I mentioned earlier in the service, I have four children, and uh, they're ages 17, 15, uh, 8, almost 9 next week, which is pretty exciting. She, you know, one of them is really, really excited. And then 8. Here's a picture of our family from Father's Day uh, with my kids. So Cindy is not in this picture, uh, but these are my four children, and I love that that says super dad. I'd like to think I am. Uh, but it is a challenging job. Can I get an amen, dads? And and so when we have children, uh, there's often a difference in how we parent, right, if we're honest, between how we parent, how our parents parented, how our grandparents parented, and maybe even perspectives between our current team, right? Cindy and I would tell you that there's some differences in how we view things, and this is just a funny picture that, that I think describes it fairly well. Uh, this is a moment where a child is being thrown into the air, and uh, this is something I've done with all of my kids. They're all too big now to do this, but, but, but at one time, all four of them w- were able to go up in the air, and uh, dad could handle that. And this was always the way I saw it. Uh, the child, you know, you can see there, it's, it's fun, it's not bad, and then the mom, right? It's like, whoa, what are you doing? And uh, have you ever noticed there's some differences in our perspectives? All right. I've been chewing on this next bit quite a bit, years actually, and, and thinking about from, every, from one generation to another, there's often some paradigms in, in how we parent. And, and so I want to put these in front of you and, and, and lead us into our text today. And so uh, there's a generation that, that it was, you're going to be seen, but not heard. Okay, this goes back a few years. It was as as if you were at the museum, the kids were going to be seen, but not heard. And it's interesting how from one generation to the next, we tend to put in the next generation in our own parenting what was missing maybe in ours. So as we move down, we see in the next generation, this would probably be to some degree my generation, we were seen and heard, it was more of a park environment. Our voice was present, joy was present, all of those things were present. We were seen and heard, but we weren't always held. So we moved to another generation. You could see what I would call helicopter parents. It's okay to laugh. (laughs) You know, Cindy and I have a very different approach. I cover, she hovers, okay? And... uh, you know, we've been doing it for 20 years. It's working out quite well for us, right? We just learn to love and respect and let each other play their role. But there's a whole generation that moved from seen and heard to now we're going to hold. That's the helicopter. It was actually a few years ago, I was talking to my brother who's a pastor in Michigan, and, and he mentioned that he had noticed the, the emergence of lawnmower parents. And I said, what's that? Never heard that one. He said, it's those parents that are now clearing the way for their kid. 
that not only are we seeing and hearing and holding, but we're actually out and positioning our children by clearing the way for them of any obstacle. I was thinking of heading into this after I had already put this piece together. What's, what's coming next? I'd say it's probably enabled. You can quote me on that 10 years from now. As you think about it, what happens in each generation is we're moving our children more and more into the center of the home in a way that maybe isn't the way it was meant to be. That, that maybe something else is supposed to be at the center of the home. So let's turn to Mark chapter 10. We're going to look at a story as we think about what is at the center of your home. How would you fill in the blank today? Is it your job at the center of your home? Whether you have kids or not, that's irrelevant today. This applies to all of us. What's at the center? Is it Kids, is it a job? Is it retirement? Is it a goal of something you want to experience or acquire? What's at the center? As we move to Mark chapter 10, uh, Jesus is doing what only good Jesus can do, right? He's changing everything all at once. And you need to know, if somebody told you that Jesus doesn't change everything, I'm so sorry. Jesus is incredible. And when he shows up in our life, he doesn't just save and rescue us, but he offers us abundant life that is so much better than what the world offers us. And it does change everything as we follow Jesus. So here we go, Mark chapter 10. We'll start in verse 13 through 16. It says, And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. If you're taking notes, we're looking at the Christ-centered home today. That's what we want to fill in the blank with. We want to fill in the blank with a Christ-centered home. What does it mean to put Jesus Christ at the center? And what we see here is that Jesus welcomes children and encourages childlike faith. He's welcoming children in a way that was revolutionary. Children were often considered property, a burden, able to be discarded if they were in the way. He was not just bringing them into the center. He was welcoming them and saying that we too are to have a childlike faith. Jesus welcomes and blesses children, and that would have shook the foundation of the religious establishment at the time. It was. They were kind of taken back. They were trying to stop the kids. But Jesus kept welcoming them, welcoming sons and daughters, potential children to his flock and to his family. I hope we as a church have that kind of heart. I hope in our homes we have that kind of heart to realize that yes, children can be a burden at times. No amens on that because that's awkward, right? But they're also first and foremost a blessing and a gift from the Lord and Jesus is saying, welcome them, and we want to be the kind of church that does just that. And we are doing it 
by creating new spaces and opportunities for kids and the next generation to be welcomed. And at every stage and age and generation, we need to have that heart to welcome children. It's interesting, he's holding them. I just wonder how many of us, as I talked about earlier, weren't held as kids or weren't held in the moments where we needed it the most. And here's the thing, whether our earthly parents meant to or not, whether or not it happened or not, our God looks at us and says, you're my child. You're a son. You're a daughter when we come to faith. And he wants to hold us and help us heal from any of those situations. And to hear that he says, you're welcome. I love you. You are a blessing. Some of us in our parenting could begin to take on that heart posture, or even how we see kids around us. And this is a principle that's bigger than our parenting. I heard one pastor say it this way, you're either a hummingbird or a vulture every day. <laughs> Whoo, here we go. If I, had, if I didn't get started yet, here I am, right? You see, vultures, what do they do? They go around looking for dead things, and they feed off dead things. And that nourishes them, but that's all they do. Hummingbirds, on the other time, go around looking for life, looking for that sweet nectar that keeps them going. And the question we need to ask in our homes and in our church home is, are we more like a vulture or a hummingbird these days? Because I believe God's looking for a bunch of hummingbirds that are saying, you know what? It isn't easy, and there are a lot of things to, to get down and discouraged about, but our God is able, he's over it all, and he will, as we follow him, correct the things we see. God makes every wrong right. There's a lot to be thankful for if we follow Jesus. And he goes further, doesn't he? It's beyond even just seeing them as a blessing. He says that each of us shall receive the kingdom of God like a child. Children are humble, most of them, but at infancy, they're definitely humble. There's a trust and a childlikeness that Jesus is saying, listen, you need to be like children when you follow me. You need to have a childlike faith that is humble enough to trust me and be dependent on me like a newborn child is dependent on its parent. And some of us maybe have got away from that childlike faith. How many of you know we can be a little childish? And we're not talking about being childish. I got a lot of gray hair coming in, if you didn't know. Gray hair is a crown of splendor, Scripture says. But it also doesn't mean we're mature. Oh, boy. We need to have a childlike faith at every age and stage that's dependent on our God. Now, as he lays that out, the story goes on. There's actually a young man, a rich young ruler, which meant that his home had possessions and wealth. It had privilege. It, it positioned him in such a way that as a young man, he was in a position of power. Scripture calls him a rich young ruler. Let's take a look at this next section in verse 17. Just after Jesus has done that, it says, 
And he was sitting out, setting out on his journey, and a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. I'm going to pause right there. There's a couple of things going on. This, this young ruler comes and he, he, he takes a knee in front of Jesus. And he's doing it as a sign of respect, but he calls him good teacher. In that day and age, rhetorical questions would have been used often to elicit the teaching, not the knowledge. Jesus knows everything. And so he's not saying, why do you call me good? Because he, he doesn't know the man's intent. He's actually exposing it. He's actually showing that by saying good teacher, he knew that in their faith, God was the only one who was good. And you're limiting my divinity by calling me a, just a teacher. How many times in our world today are people looking at Jesus as a great teacher, but they're missing that he's the son of God. And what Jesus does next is so telling, he actually uh, begins to quote from what's known as the Decalogue, the, the Ten Commandments. And he quotes from the second half. In those Ten Commandments, the first four are about God, and the next six are about our neighbor. And what he begins to quote is from those six, they're a little out of order, but Jesus is showing this man, listen, you're doing some things right this direction. But we're going to see he was missing some things vertically. So the man, verse 20, he says to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. So he must have been feeling pretty good about himself, right? It's like, I've been keeping all those commandments. And Jesus looking at him, loved him. Please don't miss that. Anything God exposes is out of a heart of love. Out of a heart of love that it says, I have better for you. I know better than you. I have more for you. So he loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. If you're taking notes here, the Christ-centered home realizes that we can possess the word, but be possessed by the world. Oh, church, how often is this true? You see, this young man knew the word, but what Jesus showed him was he was more possessed by the world, that he was holding on to possessions. And, and often what God does when he shows us what's at the center of the home is he shows us what's at the center of our heart. For this young ruler, it was possessions. So Jesus said, you need to go sell all. He was saying, you, want, you need to get free of this. You need to follow me. You need to trust me like a little child. For some of us, it may be possessions. It may be worldly things like that. For others of us, it may be something else that's at the center right now. What Jesus is doing is saying, listen, you may know the word, but be completely possessed by something else that's of the world. 
you're a note taker in Matthew chapter 4, we see Jesus actually tempted by the devil in the wilderness. And what the enemy does is he quotes the word. He quotes it out of context, he manipulates, he twists. Thankfully, obviously, the Son of God knows the word and he quotes it directly back to him. It is so important when we're facing things of this world that we have God's word in our life. But there's a difference between hearing the word and doing the word. There's a difference between hearing the word and applying the word. Oh boy, church. You can have the bumper sticker but not be driving like you know Jesus. Do you know what I'm saying? That wasn't in my notes. We must know and apply the word. So let's talk about this for a minute. Let's get back to some of the basics. Let me give you some scripture about God's word. Because this young man knew it, but he wasn't applying it. He wasn't obeying. So let me give you a couple more scriptures here. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. It says, all scripture, so all of the Bible, is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. God's word has the answers. Sometimes we can't, you know, understand it, and that's why we have each other, right? That's why we get together in groups and Bible studies and come on the weekend is so we can learn it and apply it. But it has everything we need. In James chapter 1, it says this, verse 22 through 25. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Scripture tells us that if we're not, if we're reading God's word, which by the way is meant to read us, we read it and it exposes, we read it and it shows us areas we need to grow in. God's word is rich and it's applicable. And I want to just encourage you to get God's word, an application of that word at the center of your home. It's his primary way to speak to us. And unfortunately, this young man knew some of the word, but wasn't applying or obeying it. There's actually an amazing study that came out recently by the Center uh, for Bible Engagement. And here's a quote from them. It says, a key discovery from the Center for Bible Engagement Research is that the life of someone who engages Scripture four or more times a week looks radically different from the life of someone who does not. In fact, the lives of Christians, Christians who do not engage the Bible most days of the week are statistically the same as the lives of non-believers. You ever been accused or heard the church accused of being a bunch of hypocrites? Man, y'all, we're having fun today, aren't we? I mean, the, the truth is, what it's saying is, listen, if you're not in God's word and applying it, 
you're not going to look any different than the world around you. And it's amazing in their research, what they found is one day, very little difference. Two days, a little bit of a difference. Three days in God's word, in the Bible, whether it was listening to it, which by the way, we're in a generation that has no excuses. You can get it on your phone for free. You can listen to it while you drive for free. Three days, a little bit of a difference, but four days a week was the game changer. Listen to this. This is the, what they call the power of four. Four days in the word. Can you say four with me? Can you say it like you might do it? Four. Come on, here we go. 30% less likely to struggle with loneliness if you're in God's word four times a week. 32% less likely to struggle with anger. Y'all, these are some things in generation now that our world needs help with. Do you see how God's word can help? Third, 40% less likely to be bitter in relationships. 57% less likely to be addicted to alcohol. 61% less likely to engage pornography. This is the dirty little secret no church wants to talk about. 60% spiritually stagnant. That, that, that actually we become less spiritually stagnant is the way that should read. 228% more likely to share faith with others because you're actually spending time with God. You're applying and engaging with him. And 230% more likely to disciple others. The power of four can make a difference. And I'm going to give you a really practical tool today to help you because some of you, you have read the Bible so many times, you know it in inside and out. And that's great. But are you applying it? So let me show you something. This comes from uh, Wayne Kadera, who's a pastor and author out of Hawaii. And uh, it's the soap method. Y'all ready to get some soap? <laughs> you need to try soap. Lighten up, please. <laughs> I've told my kids recently in one of my great moments of parenting, hey, you need to take a shower because you don't want to be that stinky kid at school, right? They laughed. You're not, so that's fun. <laughs> let, me, let me show you what the acronym means, Try Soap, all right? Uh, the first one is Scripture. Scripture it means we pick out a verse or a chapter or something that, that we're writing down. Here, here's what it is. Here's what I'm reading today. The second thing is we write down our observations, what are the thoughts or questions that, that emerge in this verse or these, these verses that I'm reading? What's the observations? What do you see it, it, that's happening in the text that might be happening in that day and age? And then here's where most of us quit reading the Bible, is the next two. It, you see, the next question with application is, so what, now what? Can you, can you say that with me? So what? Now what? And what that means is not so what to what the Bible says, but so what does that mean for me today? And now what am I going to do with it? And when you begin to see and read the Bible for application and to be doers and obedient, not just to have the information, that's the game changer. When you begin to realize that Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, 
you begin to go with an anticipation. You begin to read because you believe when you engage with it, God's got something for today. And you may have read that verse a hundred times, but you've been in a hundred different places in, at, in life every time you read it. So it's going to have a hundred, the meaning of the verse doesn't change. Let me be clear. The interpretation doesn't change, but the application does. And then the last part of soap after application is you pray. You say, God, thank you. Thank you for what you've shown me. Help me to apply this. And you can do this literally in five minutes or 50, depending on where you're at in your journey. I want to encourage you, encourage us to be the kind of place that is engaging God's word and applying it. Amen? Now let's see what happens next because the young man, it said, was disheartened and he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Verse 23, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is using a, a metaphor they would understand. Camels would have been the largest animal, the largest thing to point to. Eye of a needle being very small. And they would have understood the absurdity that, that in fact, this is so difficult, whether you have a lot, when you have possessions and things that are possessing you, it's hard to get to that place of open-handed, childlike faith. And he's laying that out for them. And you can imagine, they're wondering, well, what are we, what are we to do? What's anyone to do, right? And so verse 26, they said, they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Can I get an amen? amen? Jesus is not saying that those that have a lot can't be saved or won't enter the kingdom. We know that to not be true because we know our God is able to do anything. He's able to free hearts. He's able to free minds. He's able to heal and deliver and to set us free. All things are possible with God. Whatever the barrier is, whatever the thing that we see at the center of our home, center of our life, Jesus is able. He's saying all things are possible with God. Verse 28, Peter begins to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. And here's the reward. Here's the encouragement. Here's where Jesus takes it even further for those that are following him. He says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold, say a hundredfold, hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the first or the last first. If you're taking notes, the Christ-centered home, lastly, has a desire to be followers of Jesus, not just fans. We're going to sit in this for a minute. 
Because this is a real issue. Jesus is exposing in the text, listen, it's going to be hard to follow me. But if you will center on me, if you will let go, if you will follow me, I will reward, I will be with you. So important that we understand that we're not inviting Jesus to walk with us. He's inviting us to walk with him and to follow him. And there's a difference between being a fan of Jesus and being a follower. We have a lot of fans in modern Christianity in America. A lot of people that see Jesus as a better alternative than what's in the world. And while that's true, Jesus calls us to more Jesus has more. Jesus wants us to to surrender and to receive all that he has and to follow him, to truly be followers. Pastor Kyle Eidelman, who's an author, wrote a book a few years back called Not a Fan. Actually, believe it or not, even with a title like that, did really well. It's fascinating because he was laying out this concept of fan versus follower. Here's what he says in that book. He says, the biggest threat to the church today is fans who call themselves Christians but aren't actually interested in following Christ. They want to be close enough to Jesus to get all the benefits, but not so close that it requires anything from them. I just got punched too. Feels like a little bit of a gut check, doesn't it? My heart and my hope, my belief, is that Jesus knows better than anything the world could ever give us or offer us. And my heart and hope, yeah, is that we begin to to move. If we're a fan, that that's a starting point, but that's not where it's meant to stay. That we're meant to grow up in our faith. We're meant to be followers of Jesus who are centered on him. My prayer and my hope is that we move further and further in our relationship with Jesus and remember the impossible is possible with God. It's amazing what God can do when a home is centered on him. In the 18th century, a woman named Susanna Wesley, she she actually was the 25th child born to her parents. (laughs) Yeah, right? I thought four was a lot. She then had 19, eight of which survived to the end of her life. It's a much harder time to raise children with illnesses and health care not being what it is today, right? The interesting thing about Susanna, though, is she's called the mother of modern-day Methodism because she, in her home, centered the home so radically on faith that she actually raised children that weren't just fans but were followers of Jesus, that weren't perfect but went out to find Jesus in all of life. She actually had, even with the eight children, she dedicated an evening to each child to spend with them. Is this convicting me as a dad? Yes, it is. Yes, it is, just like it probably is for you. She was dedicated to spending time with them. She raised them not just educationally, but spiritually and poured into them. Two of those sons, Charles and John Wesley, would spark revival in England 
and it would lead to the Methodist movement. I got to thinking, though, what about those that, that are out of that stage? What about those that maybe have already, your, your season with kids is gone? Is it over? No. In the 19th century, Dwight L. Moody, one of the greatest evangelists our world has ever seen, was so impacted by a Sunday school teacher that his life was radically changed. And we're talk about, talking about him today. You see, we all can participate in what it means to not just be followers of Jesus, but to raise and to reach a generation that will continue to follow Jesus. So let me ask you three questions to close. Next step questions. First is, will you support Pathway being a place where children are welcome to journey with Jesus and us? And when I say support, I'm saying at a bare minimum, you don't get in the way of it by being divisive. Ooh, pastor. Ooh, I just moved someone's cheese, right? But that you also consider praying, investing time, talent, gifts, money, volunteer time. Like, What does that look like for us to say, yeah, it matters that much? Secondly, will you activate the power of four? Will you move from just possessing the word to actually applying it? I'm serious. I want to see us be a church that says at least four days a week, we are going to be in God's word. And if we committed to that today, come on, church. If we committed to that today, I'm telling you, did you remember those statistics? Commit to it today and your tomorrow will look better. Our tomorrow will look better. And then third, what do you need to let go of today? To be a follower of Jesus, not just a fan. And as we move into a time of worship through song, whether you're at home, whether you are able to stand here or not, it doesn't really matter because there is something the Lord, I believe, is showing you and doing in your heart. It is quite likely that he's showing you something that's crept into the center. And I believe right now is a moment and a time where we can let go. You don't need to sit in and go, well, I need to go home and have lunch and think about it. Come on. Our God is right there. Immediate obedience. Jesus is ready. And so I want to pray us in to an opportunity to just let it go, to recenter on Jesus and to let him be the one that builds our life. You are going to find such freedom when the pressure is off you to build your own life and you just let Jesus have his way. And if you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, if you're online, let our chat hosts know they are ready to receive and talk with you. And right here, we have a prayer team that's available and ready. Let's go to Jesus right now. Let's pray. Father, we love you and praise you. We thank you for what you are doing in our hearts. It often begins there. Our heads know the answers, but it's our hearts that often are holding on and need to let go. So right now, Lord, I pray that we would be centered on you. Help us to be a church home 
centered on you, ready to reach and raise up the next generation as a blessing, not a burden. Father, for those that maybe are holding on to wounds and hurts from their childhood, I just invite you in to heal, to deliver, to hold us, and to help us find what was missing in you. And Father, for those that that are fans or those that need to take steps to make room for your word, I pray that in this time, we would let go of the things in the way. May we surrender and really follow you. We believe great days are ahead as we do that. So have your way now. Holy Spirit, come, move in our hearts. May we let go and follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to invite you. Let's stand. Let's worship him.
must be the center of my life. Sing it to him. Jesus be the center of my life. From beginning, he will always be. there are so many things that we often think up thoughts we have that come before you when we wake up and we just confess that Lord we want to be a people that first and foremost in all of life is centered on you forgive us for the ways that we get off course and thank you for your grace that you invite us back in Thank you, God, for what you are doing in our midst today. Thank you for your joy and peace and righteousness, marks of the kingdom that come when we truly follow you. Father, I just pray for my brothers and sisters, whether they're online or in person, that they would sense your invitation to follow you into the fullness of the plans that you have for them. And may nothing get in the way May we set aside the things that are holding us back and give them to you. We pray, Lord, for breakthroughs and blessing in this season ahead. Heal, deliver, set free, do what only you can do so that we and the world will look and say, without God, that would have been impossible. And Jesus, we're going to give you all the glory. You are the center of our homes and this church home. We give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise God. Praise God. Hey, we want to invite you to, if you want to stay here and pray, connect, whatever you want to do, you can stay in this room. The Pathway Kids Say Yes displays are there. Visitors out that way to our Welcome Center when you're ready. We have a gift for you. But let's go now and be his church. Let's love God and love all people in our pathway. Have a great week. Go now and be the church.